Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everybody. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Steve Krupa here is here on the line. Hey, Steve. How you doing, Tom? Good, good. So you're not mobile, no shoe phone today. That's great. Yeah, I'm on Skype with you. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. So we, we got a, an interesting conversation with uh, Farzad Mastashari, who was the former national coordinator of health IT at uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. And now he is the CEO of a company called Alidade, right? Yeah. That's what we're saying. And um, I, we'll get into what they do in a second. But but one of the, the, the elements of the conversation I really liked was his discussion about bringing we, – we talk a lot about people from healthcare, doctors and such, going into digital health. This is a, an example of someone from the policy side of things. He also happens to be a physician, but moving from government into into digital health. And mm-hmm. uh, he seemed to think that there's a real great synergy there. What, what did you take away from that part of the conversation? Yeah, well, I mean, he obviously had the, had the right background to go after the business opportunities going after. But I think he also pointed out uh, that it, that you know, pulling people out of government and bringing them into business to run things is sort of a, a fertile ground for finding great talent. And I don't think a lot of people have thought of that before, frankly. And, um, he makes a pretty good case. He yeah. makes a pretty good case. You know, it's like if you're a mission driven, there's nobody more mission driven than somebody that's uh, doing uh, public service where their, you know, their intellect and their ambition would probably warrant greater pay, more responsibility, greater freedom, less bureaucracy outside of public service. But there is a lot of talented people, especially in uh, what I would describe as the, the, the modern generation uh, that see government as a mission. And uh, if you can find those people and draw them out into the private sector, it seems like a pretty interesting place to go find good management. And, and I think one of the more vexing parts of digital health and healthcare in general is just interacting with government and knowing how to sort of run, clear that obstacle course. So uh, having those people in-house has got to help. Well, you know, look, we are we have we have crossed the chasm in terms of government and healthcare. It is now a gov- highly government influenced uh, business. You know, it used to just be uh, Medicare and Medicaid, um, and it was about you know with a third of the population or so uh, in those programs that were that well now now more than that, and um, and now we're we're spanning the entire uh, population of healthcare delivery as government related. With not only the exchanges, but also the fact that you know that the government has stepped in and regulating uh, corporate provided insurance as well. So we are we are in that era, and I do not see coming back from that. This will remain a political and government influenced industry forever at, at this point. Agreed, agreed. So let's talk a bit about uh, about Alidin. Well, you know, we we've heard this argument before, and um, and we, we dig into it again. Uh, it's this fundamental notion that if you want to do value-based care, you've got to get the PCPs uh, involved, and really they are the ones that are positioned in the fact that they control a lot of the healthcare spend and don't, but don't actually represent the phys- physics of a lot of healthcare spend. Um, and so, if you can build and facilitate uh, intervention-oriented primary care, uh, which is not sort of just waiting for the phone to ring, but actually managing a panel of patients and their health, uh, that that should have a very good influence on things like um, medical costs and quality scores and STARS ratings and 
that's the case that's being made. It's a very interesting discussion on that. It was a great conversation. He's a, clearly a, a guy who's given a lot of thought to healthcare, and, and uh, I thought you guys had a really great exchange. So let's get into this uh, into this conversation. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Farzad Mostashari from Alidaid. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Uh, I, we, we always like to have uh, folks from the medical profession, physicians actually getting in and running uh, healthcare businesses. That's always cool. Um, so I know, I know you've got a, a background in medicine and a background in public health background serving our country uh, right. and the government. And, and now here I am interviewing you as an entrepreneur. So clearly something happened to you. Um, maybe you lost your mind either <laughs> permanently or temporarily, but um, I'd love to sort of get, get some of the notion of how you, uh, how you progressed in your career and how you ended up uh, in, the, in starting a company. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, for me, it's really been about in a, in a way, as, as you look back on your life, oftentimes it, it, in the retroscope, it makes perfect sense. And as you were living it, maybe it felt like, gee, I'm going from one thing to this other thing that seems very different. But in, in retrospect, it all makes sense. Uh, for me, it's been really one uh, main driver and, and one big idea, right? And the main driver has been how do we save the most lives? Sure. Um, and and the, the, the one kind of trick, my, my one trick that I pull out is, I asked the question, um, you know, could we use computers for that? Right, right. <laughs> so, sure. So when I, right, when I joined the New York City Health Department as basically like the, the city of you know, 10 million people was my patient, and we were doing public health surveillance and for infectious disease outbreaks, and, um, and I said, well, could we use computers for that? And that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. And started uh, this whole discipline, uh, which was a little bit of a startup, right, of creating a new discipline, bringing together computer science and public health and ER docs and so forth, saying, how do we use real-time data that's collected in the course of uh, delivering care or, you know, selling pharmaceuticals or absenteeism or what have you? How do we use that for public health purposes to monitor the health of the city in real time? Mm -hmm. uh, what would now be called, you know, big data uh, analytics. And then... A little bit later on, we said, okay, well, what kills people today is not infectious diseases as much as it is chronic diseases. So my question came out like, well, you know, how about doctors? Could we, do, do doctors use computers? <laughs> Could we get doctors to use computers for that? Not really. Not unless you uh, bribe them launched, first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that was 10 years of my life yeah. trying to get um, those electronic health records to really think of prevention and population health and uh, get doctors to, to use them. I would say I, I got half of that right, and then yeah, and then the next phase has been okay. We want to save lives, but we got to change the business model for healthcare to make it actually profitable to save lives, uh, profitable to prevent the heart attack instead of to treat it, um, more profitable to prevent than to treat. And so the question is, well, can we use technology and data and computers for uh, for that? Um, and and that's uh, I guess in short. The, the continuity thread there. Yeah, I always so when you when you think about using computers and my mantra is you know let's get the computers to do the stuff that people don't do that well, sort of repetitive tasks um, and uh, stuff that you can master if you have 
if you weren't so distracted by everything else. And let's get computers to do that stuff and let's get them to provide um, information that allow the humans to be creative, right? Which is something that computers uh, don't do well. Um, when you think about it in the, in, the, in the medical field, is that the approach you take? Find, find rep- repetitive no, things? No, not really. <laughs> no, right? So what are you doing not in really, medicine? No, no the, the way I think about it, the way I think about it is um, how do we uh, use uh, this uh, Tom Frieden, who uh, led the Center for Disease Control for many years, was my boss in New York City. He, when I was national coordinator for health IT, he he sent me a, a picture of some. He was cleaning out his desk, and he found the, some old notes that he'd taken when we were both in New York City. And the note that he'd written down on the piece of paper was, "Farzad says EHRs are just an excuse to rework their workflows." Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so uh, I think the biggest opportunity that we have with technology is not to, you know, pave over the cow path, um, okay. you know, being in Boston, you know what I mean? I do. Um, it's, it's to actually rethink the workflows and um, embed the, make the right thing to do the easier thing to do, right? So when you have an order set and as part of, um, you know, treating someone with diabetes, that makes it less likely that you're going to forget to do the foot exam or send them for an eye exam or given the pneumonia vaccine, right? Right. Um, when you have it, someone's job to check a list every day of people who've been discharged from the hospital um, and call them, right? All the intelligence and data feeds and admission discharge transfer HL7 2.x feed and the predictive analytics of the machine learning to predict who's going to be readmitted, all that is fine and good. But at the end of the day, what is really the, the, the game changer is it's now a new workflow for someone in the doctor's office to call everyone, just make that list go to zero, right? You're all the people who went to the, who discharged from the hospital yesterday, call them and bring them in for a visit. Mm-hmm. So to me, the um, the real power is in having this information be actionable, and for the computers, the the, the systems that we put in place, to be tied to a a new workflow. So we have a big sign next to in our big conference room here at Allidade, and it just says in big block letters, "What's the workflow? What's the workflow?" Nice. So. It's, 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 you know, you would think, and, and I don't mean to, to sound silly when I ask this question, but you would think that after all of these years, we would know what the heck the workflow is. Why are we, at, why are we curious about it? <laughs> why don't we know what the workflow is? Yeah, it, it's, it's partly because we need new workflows um, for a new kind of payment system and, and where we have new information that was never available before, right? So um, if, if you'd never had a data feed, that uh, that would tell you within seconds when your patient gets admitted to the hospital or discharged from the hospital, then you know you don't have to have a workflow, a panel manager workflow, right? right. That's an entirely new workflow for a primary care doc uh, office. It wasn't even something that made sense before, you know. Yeah. It's like the the train conductor job didn't exist before there were trains, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. Um. So uh, that's one, and then two is you actually are have different jobs when you're talking about prevention and population health and when you're talking about fee-for-service medicine where the workflow is so much more transactional, right? Like 
I used to tell, say like, well, we don't want to be in medicine. We don't want to be like shoe stores where you wait until the door goes jingle, jingle, right? Someone walks in and you're like, hello, how may I deliver excellent customer service to you today? (laughs) And then you walk out the door and that's it, right? And then someone said to me, Oh, Farzad, no, 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 no. Shoe stores are much more sophisticated than that. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and, and did they mention that their customer service is better, too? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they have a longitudinal, you know, customer uh, relation management uh, that, that oftentimes in healthcare we lose sight of. So, yeah, so this is, this is, this is interesting. So isn't it really the case, though, when you think about all the things that you buy in life and the value of those things, right, no matter what they are? If, if, you, if you go to buy it from someone and they say, well, I will do that to you. All you have to do is pay me for the time it requires me to do it uh, versus someone saying to you, I'll do that for you and I'll do it for you for X and it will be awesome. You always like the second one better than the first. But medicine yeah. has principally yeah. always been the first. That's right. And rather than have you explain to me why, because I think I know why. Well, maybe you do want to explain. Why do you think that's the case? Why is it taken sort of force to have the medical profession think about uh, unit pricing for value? Yeah, I mean, it's been hard to measure value um, and hard to measure outcomes. And right. Other than being dead or alive, it's, kinda, it's hard to manage, right? You know, certainly you can manage it on yeah, the basis of life, yeah. of, of life, right? Yeah. So it's been, it's been, I think, you know, it starts out naturally enough, right? Like you deliver service, you get paid for the service. But once you build a whole third-party payment system on top of that, then things start to go really haywire because the people who are delivering the service and the people who are getting the service, people making the decisions about it are not the people paying for it. Right. And then you get runaway costs and inappropriate utilization and, and none of the usual things that would, would put the brakes on kind of runaway, uh, inappropriate use, overuse. Um, so uh, the... The, the newest um, take on this, right, is this whole volume to value movement, this accountable care movement, which fundamentally says we got to align incentives. If you want more, better outcomes, then pay docs for better outcomes, right? Um, and it's still not easy. It's still hard to measure outcomes. Uh, but you know what? There's some things that, that, like, everyone can pretty much agree on, right? Like, you don't want your mom to be hospitalized. Right. I don't want my mom to be hospitalized if her provider, primary care provider, you know, prevents a hospitalization that that would cost the system ten thousand dollars and cost her, you know, potentially fatal, you know, complications and infections in the hospital and a bad experience. If they can really take care of her better and prevent hospitalization, I'm fine with, you know, the payer getting, you know, some money and and the doctor getting some money uh, saved from from that. So that's the basic concept uh, nowadays. And I think part of the problem that there's this um, this hangover people have from managed care days, where they assume that oh, if if the if the healthcare is going to be you know less expensive, it must be that it's worse healthcare. It must be that I'm not getting something instead of getting you know what's probably cheapest is is like concierge primary right. care is probably the cheapest form of healthcare you can imagine. So tell us about your business. Um, I know um, I know I know your your uh... You're focused on on the primary care. You're focused on technology. You're focused on moving towards a value based based paradigm. How do you bring and in a world where the third party payment system is still very prevalent, right? Especially 
yeah. even even though you know the, I think the wisdom is get the consumers to have a little skin in the game. So tell tell me how you're shaping your business to to compete. Yeah. So I left Federal Service in October of 2013. I was, you know, in charge of rolling out EHRs uh, and health IT to, the, to doctors and hospitals around the country. And uh, there was this one idea when I left that was really kind of grabbed me and wouldn't let go. So I went to Brookings, a think tank in D.C., to kind of study this this phenomenon of physician-led accountable care organizations. And at that time. Everyone thought, oh, an ACO, that must be a hospital. That must mean a hospital, right? A hospital gets a group of, you know, they have capital, they get a group of doctors, and they take on accountability for the total cost of care. And if they can reduce the cost of care, if they can reduce hospitalizations, then they get to keep half of it. And I was like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> right? Like I say, I go to you and I say, hey, if you cut your own income, I'm going to give you back half of it. Right. Like that, that's not a great financial incentive for those hospitals. Uh, but on the other hand, if you get primary care docs who only account for 4% of the cost and you incentivize them to improve the care and reduce hospitalizations, well, that's, that's super powerful. So, uh, so I was like, okay, let me study these guys and let's see what the, what the issues are and why, is, why aren't there more of these groups out there? Uh, the economics seems so compelling. Did you spend any time in California? Are they doing it in California? Is California primary? They are. They are. Are they good at it? Yeah, they are doing it. They are. They are. And one of the really interesting questions is why has it been so hard for to spread the California staff model, you know, managed care uh, outside of California, right? And so, uh, one of the things that uh, that became clear is you actually need not one, not two, but three sets of solutions and competencies that, that kind of click into each other. You need to be able to get these small practices contracting, just like value-based contracting. You need a certain minimum size to be able to, for it to even make sense. So a small practice needs to become part of a larger group that can negotiate contracts, certain kinds of value contracts together. That's one piece. So that would be the California IPA, right? The, the IPA would be the example? California IPA, that's right. Uh, then there's the second thing you need, right? You actually need the data and the technology to be able to do the population health stuff that rides on top of what the EHRs do. So if you get a group of independent practices, you get 10 practices, they're going to be on seven different EHR systems. So you need to be able to get that data out. You need to munge it together with claims data, with hospital data, and be able to be able to create that actionable data layer. And a lot of the tools out there were rehashed, Medicare Advantage reporting tools, they really weren't workflow tools. And then the third thing you need is you actually need to give them hands-on assistance in coaching, in changing their practice patterns, using the tools and monitoring and encouragement and motivation and governance and all that kind of stuff, local boots on the ground. My consultant's friends call that change management, right? Change management, right. So you need change management, the technology, and the and the business model, and you need all three of them, and you need those three pieces to work together. Gotcha. So it's actually pretty hard. <laughs> no, no, I would imagine. Well, you know, it's it's funny. We all we all thought that that this was going to be California's great export, but it never really happened. Yeah, uh, in some ways, and it is pretty hard. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the California great primary care models, in California have have you know tried to expand and have failed over and over and over again, um, partly because. 
the environment's different. The contracting is different. There's less of a of a acceptance of managed care on the part of patients, and the plans are more reluctant to give you contract. Partly because the tools that the tech they've built isn't was built, you know, a long time ago, or they really didn't do it using tech at all, right? So, tech is what helps you scale those 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 things. And then they their model was more large, um, typically, right? Large staff model practices uh, instead of being able to take pick up you know 26 small practices in Delaware and bring them together under under one mission. Okay, we're going to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that the Digital Health Innovation Summit is happening on November 30th in Boston. Go to healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com to register. We're working on the agenda as I speak, and it's going to be a terrific show. The last two have sold out, so please don't wait. Again, go to healthag.com to register for the November 30th Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Now let's get back to this conversation. So this, when you, when you sort of came up with these uh, three concepts, did you seek out to build a company that had that? Did you, did you decide you were going to build the technology yeah. yourself? That you were going to build the change management skills? I always say yeah. sometimes if you build yeah, a really I mean, good technology. The one piece. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say the one piece of it that I actually thought we might be able to buy, not build, was the tech. Right. Uh, I was the national coordinator for health IT. I, I knew that every vendor in the market was going to come and want to give us a sweet deal, right, because they want to have me as a customer. And we sat back, and my, my chief technology officer, co-founder, Edwin Miller, and I. Uh, Edwin has basically built every cloud-based small practice EHR out there uh, starting you know, 20 years ago and, and with such stops as, you know, Athena Clinical that he basically built and he was a practice fusion and care cloud. So, you know, real veteran of the industry. And we sat back and we looked at the tools that were coming towards us and we said, we don't like any of it. And it's not that hard to build this first piece and then not that hard to build the second piece. And before you know it, we, we own the full stack. Hmm. And, 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 and where I was headed was if you, if you're building strong technology, it goes back maybe to what's on your whiteboard in your conference room, the change management should be inherent in the notion of saying, please use the technology the way I've built it. Don't try to change my technology because I've actually been worried about your workflows and worried about your practice patterns. And that was, that's the essence of what we tried to build in the software. Is that the way you guys yeah. approach it? You got to I mean, if you build it, if you build it well, then they will and it's solving a problem for them, then they will use it, but you still need the coaching. So we monitored, our key metric is for, for the technology use is um, percent of practices that are daily users, which is a high bar, right? Like there is no one who uses a insurance portal daily. Nobody, no practice. Right. Um, and we said, we want, our pra- we want our practices to be in our tool daily, every day. We want to give them something of value. And when we started off with our 2016 cohort in January, 40% of the practices were using the tool every day. By the time we were done in December, done with 2016, it was up to 80% of the practices were in the tool every day. Still not 100%, which is what we're working on getting to. And what, do you, what were they getting from your tool that got them there every day? Was it... You know, is it, were they using the same features, or were they using a different set of features? 
what was what was what was providing the impetus for him to come there? Yeah, I mean, what do you um, what do you want to do for population health? What do you need to do that your EHR doesn't help you do? So it's you know one percent of my patient panel is coming in to see me today. What do I need to know about them that I don't know? So that's that's one question, right? Mm-hmm. Like I need to know if they're having a recent hospitalization, if they've had a fall, if they don't take their medications. I need to know what diagnoses other doctors have given them. I need to know if they have higher than expected cost. I need to know if they're a frequent flyer, right? I need to know what are some care gaps or coding gaps they have. So that's one question that we help answer them. Patients who are coming in today, what do you know about the world outside of my practice that I should know about? That's one. The second is, of the 99% of patients who are not here today, some of them just got out of the hospital. So tell me who are all my patients who just went to the ER to the hospital. And so I can call them. I could check, on, check in on them and see how they're doing. And then there's another question, which is, of the 99% who are in my office today or, and not in the hospital, who should I be worried about? Who are the top 10 people that I should just call today and check in on them and say, how are you doing? Because our predictive algorithms tell us they have a high probability of ending up in a hospital. Uh, they need care management. So those are some of the, the, the basic building blocks of population health management. Uh, it's the wellness at the base, it's transitional care management, it's high-risk uh, care management, and then the new features that we're building in this year are around referral management. That's pretty cool. I like, I like this. I would, yeah. I would like to be on the receiving end of, well, maybe I wouldn't like to be, but if I was, wasn't was feeling well, I'd like to be on the receiving end of a proactive phone call from my physician office. Oh, 100%. Office. That has never happened to me in my entire oh, 100%. life. Oh, 100%. That's no, insane. No, and, and But I bet you, yeah. you know, here's my experience. Tell me if you think this is uh, true. People, when they don't feel well, don't necessarily go to the doctor. Because doctors aren't that accessible, generally speaking, right? In New York City, where I'm from, if you want to get an appointment with a doctor, you better be sick or you're talking months before they'll see you. Yeah. Yeah, my dad, my dad, uh, it took, he just called his primary care doctor and they gave him a time like eight weeks away. Right. Uh, our docs, if you're sick, they will see you that day or the next day. Nice. So tell me about the model. Is it all in the contracting that causes that behavior? Yeah. It's, it's the new financial incentives where if, the, if you save the patient from needing to go to the emergency room, that you know, part of that savings comes back to the practice. That's great. Yeah. So um, I feel like you wanted to make a point, though, on, 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 them, seeing the, on them seeing the patient. The, the, and, and I guess maybe I'll just ask the question. Um, what have you noticed in terms of, you know, volume of office visits, say, per patient in your practices versus what a traditional primary care doctor might see? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that happens like clockwork, right? Like now we've been, we now have 15 ACOs doing this. We have 200,000 Medicare patients who are, you know, being seen by our 1,000 primary care docs across the country. And what happens like clockwork, totally predictably in every single ACO is more primary care visits with primary care providers and fewer primary care services delivered by specialists. That's a good thing, right? You, you don't have the splitting of the, the primary care services. Um, and even though the primary care docs are making more money, uh, we're seeing a 10% to 15% reduction in ER visits that lead to hospital admissions. 
We're seeing a 15% reduction in hospital readmissions for those patients who are discharged and a 5 to 10% drop in total hospital utilization and um, post-acute care skilled nursing facility utilization. Like clockwork, totally predictable. It's amazing. That's amazing. I got to say, so... uh... So let's go back to the business model. So you've, you, you, am I right in the fact that you're building, you're building, quote, similar things. You're calling ACO, but it feels like it's similar to IPA, so networks, primary care doctors. Then are you, what type, what level of risk are you taking with the, with the, uh, with their, with your contracts? Is it just purely professional services risk? Is yeah, we start happen? with, yeah, no, we start with, with just gain share uh, arrangements with um, Medicare as our anchor tenant. Mm-hmm. So, uh, those are one-sided um, risk contracts where if costs go up, the docs are held harmless. If costs go down, then you share with the government in the savings, and we share with them if we get savings. Um, so those are the, the first contracts. And then we, as they gain experience and confidence in it, we're moving next year to two-sided contracts uh, with our more mature ACOs and similarly taking uh, taking on commercial contracts with initially gain share and then uh, in out years, two-sided risk. But what's one thing that's important, and we argued this successfully from a policy point of view, you want downside risk to be motivating but not paralyzing, right? Right. Yep. There was, you know, if, 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 if you want someone to, I don't know, play chess better, right? Give them a little skin in the game, sure, they'll be more focused. Put a gun to their head, they're not going to play well, right? Right, 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 right. So you can't have you can't have so much risk that it would bankrupt the practice and you know put them out of business. So what we argued with the the federal um, uh, program that was something around uh, advanced alternative payment models that qualify docs for a five percent bonus, we said, look, make it a percent of their practice revenue, right? So make it ten percent, right? You could lose ten percent of all the revenue you got from Medicare, if at, at most, right? If, if costs go up, uh, but don't make it so that it would bankrupt the practice. And, and I think that's the right level of risk for these uh, primary care ACOs. Yeah, I mean, it's, some of it is just event risk. You can't do anything about it, right? I mean, obviously there's risk around. That's right. You don't, want, you don't want to, exactly. It's, it's medical risk that we're interested in, not really actuarial insurance. You know, two, two patients get, you know, uh, pancreatic cancer and then, you know, the practice goes broke. That doesn't make sense. How how did doctors respond to the notion of waste? So we talk about medical risk, right? One one of the, one of that is is sort of like make sure these patients that are ill are being looked after appropriately. Like, if, and, and if they're not, get you know have them place that phone call. There's also the other side of the coin, which is waste, right? So you you don't want to be prescribing unnecessary treatments, unnecessary tests, unnecessary measures. Is that a more difficult thing to manage yeah. than the other piece? Well, it's always easier to see other people's waste <laughs> yes, <laughs> than I, it, your own that, There's no waste, question about that. Right? I am very good at identifying other people's waste. There's no question about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, that's why we started off partnering with, with uh, the, 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 the least wasteful part of the healthcare system, right? Um, and within them, you know, we have a profile of every primary care doc in America, and within them, we select people who aren't doing the, you know, the the fee for service pumping kind of procedures that even primary care can do. Um, so these are these are docs who, by and large, make 
their living seeing patients one by one and spending time with them. So they're not, there's not a ton of waste in primary care. Where there's a ton of waste is in procedures that are not necessary, imaging, hospitalizations that are not necessary, skilled nursing facility days that aren't necessary, home health that's not necessary, hospice, even hospice. Uh, we've seen in Mississippi and Louisiana, that's uh, where most of the people leave the hospice still alive. Um, so there's a lot of waste to be identified. And once you give the primary care docs, you know, they say like the scales fall from their eyes, you know, for the first time, they're able to actually see where does all the money go? Because mm-hmm. you could have a really complicated patients that, you know, the, the government paid $100,000 out on or $50,000 out on and the primary care doc got 400 bucks. So right. where's the other, where's the other 49,500 going, right? The failures of primary care and waste. So once, once you open their eyes to it and they're like, oh my God, like how, how did, how did they possibly, you know, out of this, this other doctor, what the heck are they doing to my patient that I didn't know about? Um, they, they are, um, able to, uh, begin to exercise their influence. So in, in your model, do the primary care doctors have the power to sort of stop a path of treatment that, that they want to take a look at? Like, so if they feel that the case has moved into sort of, you know, in, in, what happens, it ends up getting into the specialty sort of network and move, start moving around between all the different ologies. Does your, does the, the PCPs have a yeah. chance to say, hey, time out, let's take a look at what's going on here? Well, that's exactly what they have to do, right? Is they have to want the ball. They have to want to be the quarterback. Um, but it's soft influence. It's not, it's not like managed care, hard influence where they, they have to get a referral, right? right? It's really communicating with the, the patients, the patient's family, and with the other docs to say, hey, look, this is, not, this is not the right standard of care. This is not evidence-based. And being able to have the information, the incentives, and frankly, the power, the market, you know, the number of different primary care docs in the market where a specialist cares, right? They say like, look, I can't keep sending my patients to you if you're going to keep doing this. Um, and what we're now seeing is that it might make sense for us to extend our network to include high value preferred specialists now. So you start with primary care, sure. you get the data, you identify who are the high value specialists, and then you add them into the network. So now we have a network that has high value primary care providers plus their preferred specialists, and that becomes even more powerful. So I know you mentioned that you're down in Bethesda. What markets are you in today? Where, where, where can uh, where, do 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 you do the patients come find you, or do you find patients? How, how do people find out about you? No, no, we the patients don't even patients don't even know that the reason why they're getting this call when when they left the hospital from their doctor's office, they know nothing about the name Alidate, and they don't need to, right? Their relationship is with their primary care doc, and we, you know, we power their primary care practices. Uh, we're in 15 states. Our biggest concentrations right now are in Delaware, West Virginia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, um, uh, and you know, as I said, uh, 10 other states that we're we're adding um, uh, practices to uh, every year. Very cool. Very cool. So I got sort of an a- an abstract question for you, sort of as a closer, if you will. Yeah. Um, what, what, do you, what do you take away from this experience of going from public policy into entrepreneurship around corporate culture, getting a business started, creating uh, a mission-driven culture? Yeah. How, how, did, how did you 
feel about that? Any tips that you can give entrepreneurs out there about how to get that? Accomplished? Yeah, I, I think I think that the distance between mission-oriented public service and mission-oriented um, private service, <laughs> entrepreneurial service, is not that big. And I actually think that um, well, I don't know if I should give away my secret, but uh, <laughs> people who've done public service and succeeded at it at a at a high level. Um, they are underappreciated by the markets. They can talk anybody into anything. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, they, they they've had serious responsibility, and they've 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 um, they've done a good job in that in those contexts. And I see a lot of people who had you know real positions of authority and responsibility in government, and then they leave government, and people the only job they can think of for them is government relations, lobbying, or policy. And I'd take those people and I make them executive directors of owning P&L for our ACOs. We make them, you know, coordinators and analysts and, um, you know, leaders within, of our, of our, within our, our company. So we actually have, I think, a real competitive edge in being able to attract mission-oriented people uh, who, you know, also you know, don't have a lot of golden handcuffs <laughs> right, right, uh, right. that bar them from being able to, to take a flyer on a, on a startup with lower salary because, you know, they're, they're, they're living comfortably with a government salary so they can afford to, um, to work for a startup salary. Very cool. Well, thank you very much. Last, last thing would be um, how, does, do our, how do our listeners find out about you? Do you have website, blog, Twitter handle? Yeah. All that good stuff. Yep, tell yep. us, tell us where you are. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so our website is uh, aladade.com, A-L-E-D-A-D-E.com, and I am on Twitter all the time. My uh, handle is Farzad underscore MD. Farzad MD. Very cool. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you, Dr. Farzard Mastashari, for joining us on the Breaking Health Podcast. Great to hear Allidade's story and wish you the best of luck going forward. Steve Krupe did another great job leading this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks also, of course, to our Breaking Health Podcast listeners for joining us. We're grateful you're here. We'd love it if you'd give us a ranking on iTunes. We would love it if you'd tell your friends about the Breaking Health Podcast. And finally, uh, reach out to me, Tom, at healthagy.com. It's the word health followed by the letters egy.com and uh, let us know who we should have on the show, what we should be talking about, or just uh, shoot an email to, to say hello. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Finally, the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is happening on November 30th in Boston. Go to healthag.com to register and we will see you in Boston, my hometown.